0: Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. Today, we're talking about Piranha 3D, the 2010 comedy horror film starring Elizabeth Shue, Adam Scott, and Jerry O'Connell. I didn't work on this film, but I did originally see it in the theater in 3D and recently rewatched it on Showtime Anytime, where they confusingly list it as Piranha rather than Piranha 3D. Maybe that's because you're not watching it in 3D on Showtime. There are probably other streaming websites where you can find it as well. High-level plot summary, piranhas, nudity, violence, hijinks ensue. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 74%, and the critics' consensus reads, playing exactly to expectations for a movie about killer fish run amok, Piranha 3D dishes out gore, guffaws, and gratuitous nudity with equal glee. But as always here on Below the Line, we're not focused on what the critics thought. My guests today all worked on the film. Warning in advance, today's conversation will contain spoilers. First, Katie Carroll, you were the second assistant director. Welcome back to Below
1: the Line. Thanks, kid, happy to be here.
0: So Katie, you've been on the show before, but remind our listeners what you're working on now.
1: Uh, Well, I just finished a project for Apple TV called Defending Jacob. I have no idea when they'll release it. That's entirely in their purview. Uh, so that was about eight months out in Boston and now I'm home. Oh, wow.
0: Well, when uh, that does come out, Katie, hopefully you'll come back and, and tell us more about it. Sure. Presuming any of, any of us actually get to see it. We'll, we'll see <laughs> all that. So we got to still see what their rollout's going to be. I'm uh, mm-hmm. glad you're here. Thanks. Next, also returning to the show is Scott Buckwald, Property Master. Scott, welcome back. Thanks, kid. Good to be here. So Scott, you shared with me earlier that Piranha 3D paid for your kitchen remodel and therefore holds a special place to your heart.
2: It did. It was kind of a borrowed line that, that, that I picked up from, another, from an actor that it wasn't the best movie in the world, but the kitchen it bought me was very nice.
0: <laughs> well, we're going to hear more about how that came together, but thanks, thanks for being here. And then finally, we're joined by Richie Allison, who is a set production assistant on Piranha 3D. Richie, welcome.
3: Thanks, kid. Great to be here.
0: Now, Richie, on IMDb, you have a lot of PA credits, but I didn't see anything recent. What are you up to these days?
3: Uh, Mostly, I've been doing stand-in work for the past few years on set and also just recently finished uh, directing and producing a feature-length documentary that's coming out on distribution next month.
0: Oh, congratulations. That sounds great.
3: Yeah, it's called We Stand Corrected, Dan Amora, and it'll be available on all VOD platforms, Blu-ray, DVD, starting November 26th. Um, It's about a... Pretty famous now, prison break that happened in upstate New York uh, in 2015.
0: Well, Richie, that sounds great. Hey, yeah, well, we'll watch for it. But turning our attention to Piranha 3D, but first I want to talk a little bit about Piranha movie history. The original Piranha was a Roger Corman film that came out in 1978, and it was planning to capitalize on the popularity of Jaws. Jaws 2 actually was released in 1978 as well. Universal actually considered obtaining an injunction to prevent Piranha from coming out, but the lawsuit was canceled after Steven Spielberg himself gave the film a positive review. Perhaps he was impressed by the script, which was written by John Sayles. If you don't know John Sayles, let me say that he's been twice nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay, although Piranha wasn't one of them. But the movie has a cult following. I think I saw it as a kid, enjoyed it at the time, and it's worth checking out. Piranha had a sequel in 1982, which is not a good movie, but is notable because it's James Cameron's theatrical feature film directorial debut. Now, it's also a Corman film, and there's a lot of drama around Cameron and the producers and this Italian crew, and Cameron actually doesn't call it his first film at all. He, it's a bit of a fluke. You can read all about that on Wikipedia. I will mention it in this movie, The Piranhas Fly, and just leave it at that. Okay, in 1995, Corman remade the original film for Showtime again, and this time they actually used footage from the original to roll back in. But yeah, so that's, you can guess that film is what it is. But that does lead us up to Piranha 3D. So diving in, have any of you guys seen any of the original movies?
2: I've seen the first
0: one several times. <laughs> right? The first one holds up, I think. I think the first one is worth checking out for folks.
2: Yeah, you could see why all the sequels came out after the first one. It definitely fits into the. That 70s genre style,
0: Katie or Richie, had you guys seen the original before you were brought in to do work on uh, this one?
1: Not at all. This is not the genre that I normally go for. I usually avoid this kind of genre like the plague. I can appreciate uh, how everyone who loves this genre has this mass history of it and of film and how it all fits in. I I appreciate that, but if I sit down to watch a movie, it's Almost never this style.
0: (laughs) Well, So how did you end up getting involved in this one, Katie?
1: Uh, The first AD was somebody that I'd worked with a bunch of times, and he called me, and I was like, yeah, sure. Arizona in the summer, Lake Havasu in July? Sign me up. That'll be great. But it was somebody that I really liked working with, and, you know, it's fun to work out of town. And sure, good movies, bad movies, they kind of pay the same.
0: Scott,
2: what about you? When did you get involved? I got involved shortly before I went out
0: to Arizona. So not a ton of prep for this, or you were out there and doing the prep there? I mean, how, how much runway did you have on this one?
2: Probably prepped about three weeks in LA. Most of the weapons, stuff like that. And then they, they, they brought me and my assistant out to, to Arizona. I think we prepped maybe two or three
3: weeks in Arizona before we started shooting.
0: And Richie, um, how much runway did you have as far as ramping up for this one?
3: Sounds pretty similar to them. Um, Katie's actually the one that hired me for this. So um, I probably started a few weeks after her. Um, It was kind of a coincidence. I happened to have lived in Arizona a couple years before I moved to LA. Still had an Arizona driver's license. And that was actually a big reason I got hired basically as a local. Um, So it worked out. Plus, the difference between me and Katie is it's actually one of my favorite genres. And so when I heard about it, it was definitely something I jumped on.
1: Now that I know Richie, I was like, oh, he would have been my first call if I'd known him then. <laughs> like, you got to come do this with me, buddy. So, but now that I know him better, I'm like, every time I get the call for something like this, Richie, you got to come do this. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. So as you guys mentioned, you guys were filming out in Arizona. At the end of the movie, there's some additional location tags?
1: Uh, I think it's post-production. I know they ended up doing a lot of editing in Montreal just because they got the um, – Incentive literally just to go up to Montreal. Uh, and the director, being French, spoke French. So he was like, fine, hire a bunch of French speaking Quebecans and Quebec, however that's pronounced, and uh, we'll do all the post up there. And a lot of the visual effects after the fact, a lot of the companies were up in Canada. And I think they might have hired an Australian company to do some uh, post production as well. But all of the filming was in Lake Havasu.
0: Let's talk a little about the director. Alexander Aja has done a series of, um, I say films in this genre. I remember seeing High Tension, the the French one he did originally. That's the first thing I was aware of. What was it like working with him?
1: He was a character. He was, uh, (laughs) I mean, he also has this massive love of the genre. So every time, and Piranha was his love letter to the genre. So almost every single scene has some kind of, Easter egg, or appreciation, or homage to some other movie in some other way, aspect form of how much he loves this genre. Um, But he, uh, so I mean, he just his love of everything definitely came through. Uh, I remember really enjoying working with him. I don't think our first AD did as quite as much, but uh, he, yeah, Alex and I got along fantastically.
2: I I agree. I, I liked. I liked Alex. It was, the, the Easter egg part was a lot of fun. Um, my assistant, Mark, is especially into to this genre. And, and I'm a big pop culture head, so a lot of the little things we got. My favorite, my favorite, I don't even know if it's really an Easter egg, it's so obvious, was kind of resurrecting uh, the Hooper character with Richard Dreyfus. Originally, when he was hired, he was hired just to play whatever character he is in the movie. But then Alex wanted to transform him into Hooper, so I had to seek out his, the same glasses. He wore a very specific pair of glasses in, in Jaws, so I was able to track those down. And it pretty much is Hooper. They wanted to say that Hooper had retired. He was living out in Lake Havasu, and this was him. And I think they did as much Hooperizing him as they, they legally can get away with doing. <laughs> If that like, was an Easter egg, that was by far my
3: favorite one.
1: And even the bottle of beer. I completely yeah. forgot that until I rewatched it. It was like, oh my God, I would totally remember that now.
3: Yeah, the bottle of beer, Jim- the song he's singing, it's all, it's all Jaws.
1: Yeah.
0: It, it's all a throwback to Jaws. And that's the opening scene, folks, uh, just to kind of intro the movie. And as you say, I think to call out and be very specific about, um, you know, where the homage is, is going with this film. So we're going to talk more about the actors who are involved and and their varying degrees of enthusiasm uh, for the movie itself. But tell me what might have been different. I know that you shot in 2D and it was converted afterwards, but it's very clear that it's planned as a 3D movie. It's not an afterthought that it's going to be in 3D.
1: Well, we only shot in 2D because because 90%, 95% is on the water. And to shoot in 3D, you need to be able to put... Um, you need like a hard floor, frankly. So when we shot it, we knew it was going to be converted. And every single thing that we knew there was going to be a 3D element to it, uh, we ended up doing a 3D pass, which uh, if I remember correctly involved just basically taking out the foreground elements and doing one more pass at the same setup, uh, just to get the mountains in the background or the water or some other effect. So as we shot it, we shot extra footage knowing it was going to be converted, but knowing it couldn't be shot in 3D just because of the water element. I mean, I know the reviews on the 3D were mixed, and I remember reading one review where, like, it was a bad idea to decide the last minute to make it 3D. I'm like, no, it was not decided last minute. It was just the water element made it really, really tricky and difficult to do.
2: I think the reviews were this kind of movie. I've done several movies over the years that, when I would go to see them in the theaters, the audience who appreciates them really enjoyed them. But this was the kind of movie that makes me hate reviewers. And (laughs) I don't think it's the world's greatest movie, but the reviewers, I believe, who are a little bit holier than now in their approach to these movies, they did not like this movie going in. And I wouldn't be surprised if 80% of the reviewers never even saw this movie.
1: Or the original Piranha, so they didn't appreciate what it was appreciating.
2: Right. I mean, it's just the the movie had everything going against it as far as a more cultured cinema reviewer would be looking for. And they didn't take the movie at its worth or what it was trying to present. And I think what the movie was trying to present was it was honest with itself and it delivered what it was looking to deliver. At the time, my son, who was 13, loved it. He absolutely loved it. It was the best thing I've ever done at that point to him. And that was the audience they were going for.
1: We leaned into the ridiculousness of it. I I just remember there's one one scene or one shot where uh, you're watching two girls come up out of a hot tub and crane up and you see the massive party of 500 people that's the start of spring break. And there was a little miscommunication between Alex and the girls of like how they wanted to walk and then they finally said, oh, you want them to walk side by side, not one in front of the other. And in my bad French accent, he's like, But of course, that is why we are shooting in a So he can frame <laughs> up on two girls' asses in bikinis and then frame up We're like, Oh, now we know what this movie is. Got it. Understood. We're in. Let's just lean into the whole freaking thing. And it was fun.
0: You know, I was a little older than 13 when I saw it, but uh, I felt the same way. I thought it was a movie that knows what it is and what it's gonna deliver and then leans in without pretension on, on exactly that. It's
2: one of the movies that, in a way, indirectly helped networks like Netflix come about because you're starting to see more movies now go directly to Netflix or Amazon. Now, if you feel that a certain movie is polluting the theater, you can have just as much fun watching on Netflix. Though personally, I will see anything in a theater first.
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Even if it's something I don't like, I enjoy not liking it in the theater more than <laughs> I enjoy not liking it at home. So, uh, so let's talk some more about the specific challenges on this. Uh, Katie, you mentioned about not being able to use the 3D cameras because of the water work. There's a lot of water work in this film. I, we're going to talk about some specific scenes later, but in general, talk about that as a challenge for planning yeah. and execution.
1: Water is its own huge element. Everything takes twice as long as on water. It's, um, say the director wants to go tell an actor something. Okay, hang on a second. Let's call over the boat or the jet ski. Hang on. Now it's coming. Okay, now hop on. All right, now he's got to go over, tells the actor something. Okay, great. Comes on back. Meanwhile, the makeup artist wants to touch up the actor. Okay, now we got to send that person over there to pick them up. Like, you can't just 17 different things that happen at once between takes can't happen at once. They have to take turns depending on how many boats or jet skis you have to literally deliver people around. I mean, it was so much daylight as you're moving around and the sun is starting to set. Oh, now the sun's in a bad position. Well now let's, we got to raise the anchor to shift the entire boat around a little bit. It's everything you think you know about movies, double the time when it's dealing with water automatically. That's just the way it works.
2: The, the great thing about hearing Katie say that is there's always the, the circle of people who have to put their hands on things, whether it's Katie having to bring in the actors but, or, or me having to bring in props. And I remember the biggest problem I had with the water, not the time, but the understanding of what it took. I remember we'd, there was a couple of times we'd be out on a boat and not only were we on the water, but we were far, far out from where all of our supply trucks were, where base camp was. So out of the middle of nowhere, all of a sudden, someone would be like, hey, you know what would be a good idea? Let's bring (laughs) such and such. And before we would get on the boat in the morning, we would go through things. I would say, is there anything else we could possibly need? Because I was limited to the amount of stuff I could take. I didn't have a a barge with my 48-foot trailer on it. (laughs) And we would get out in the water, and it was a good 20 minutes sometimes by speedboat back just back to our landing area and whenever i would get sent out for something there was no understanding or sympathy of well it's going to take scott 20 minutes to get there 10 minutes to pick up what he needs and 20 minutes to get back it was always there was always that rushed feeling like how come you don't have it now or why is it taking you 40 minutes to do all of this and that became very old and very frustrating very quickly
0: I can imagine.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it, that aspect was very, very difficult. The one plus side was that it was so freaking hot that it kind of became nice just at lunch when we didn't have time to take a boat back in and actually go through the catering line. And we would all just kind of sit out on a barge like, okay, well, it's 108 degrees outside. Let's jump in the water. All right. And then as you're still wet and now you're kind of eating a box lunch and you dry off and okay, let's shoot the afternoon's work. So Having a lake right there was not bad, but yeah, every other aspect of it added Katie, a thousandfold elements.
2: Katie, do you remember what part of the lake, what aspect of the lake made going into the lake very unpleasant about midway through the movie?
1: Uh, was it the fish?
2: Yes. Midway <laughs> through the movie, it was, there was a disease, there was a bacteria in the water that was killing the fish. And it wasn't killing one or two of them, it was killing tens of thousands of them. All over,
1: all over the lake, just floating dead fish.
2: Dead, rotting (laughs) fish floating in the top of 110 degree water. And I remember when we would go, when the the boats would be cutting through the water, you would see them just (laughs) pushing the fish aside. How do you shoot around that many dead fish?
1: Well, we went out far enough that, you know, they would, they would, you know, the, the lake would actually push them towards shore a little bit. We were out far enough that we wouldn't see them. But the funny thing is it happened about halfway through shooting the movie. So all of the locals assumed it was all of the fake blood that we were putting in the water, which it was not. It was completely biodegradable. I mean, the effects team went through hell and high water just to make sure this blood was like it could be in the water, it was perfectly safe, there was nothing wrong with it. You could swim in it, no problem. And but the locals thought it was us that was doing it to this fish. We're like, no, the fish have a disease. This has nothing to do with us. And There was like this mini campaign set up to try and convince the locals, this is not us. We have nothing to do with this.
2: We were, my assistant and I had gone out to dinner. It was, we had one day off. We were doing a six day week. So it was Sunday night. We had gone out to dinner one night and we're just talking, doing movie talk at our table. And a couple of the locals who were fishermen had overheard us. And this was, this was like something from a bad movie. These two big, (laughs) rough looking guys come over to our table and it looked like they wanted to just take the two of us out into the parking lot and start a fight. And the first thing they did was they kind of come over and thank us for polluting the lake. And it was just what Katie said with the blood that it was killing the fish and this is how they make their living. And we did our best to explain to them that, that the, the, the blood had nothing to do with it. It was totally environmental friendly. And just when we got that part settled, they started telling us that all the fish were also disappearing because that we had lost piranha into the lake and that real piranha were in the lake, which had no natural predators <laughs> and killing all the fish. And then we had to explain to them that not only do we not have any piranha, but that the piranha in the movie are all CGI and these are like ancient giant piranha, <laughs> that they're not the regular size piranha and these guys would not have it. They were like, well, that's, that's just, you know, you guys are lying to us, you'll save anything to start your skin, we want to kick your ass right here. (laughs) And they were furious. We just didn't know where this was going to go. Eventually, they just kind of just like waved us off and walked away. But to this day, they're probably convinced that it was all because of the disease and the piranha that are still swimming around
0: in the lake. (laughs) <laughs> Katie, it doesn't sound like your campaign, the movie's campaign to convince folks <laughs> was maybe as effective as you hoped it would so.
1: Well, we kept telling, I mean, the only locals that we truly knew were all of the extras. And uh, so we kept telling them, tell your friends, tell your friends. And uh, I mean, they believed us because they were swimming around in the blood and they were having fun and they were fine. But. Like, they don't believe us. They think we're drinking the Kool-Aid, that we're on your side. No, swear to God, it's it's not us.
2: Us Hollywood people will do anything for money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So talking about the extras, Richie, what was your role on the film as set production assistant? Did you have a special focus or uh, tell me more about what you did?
3: Yeah, I mean I was on a movie like this, you know, especially with the water and all, you're kind of doing a little bit of everything, but definitely did a lot of work with the extras and the extras were great. They were troopers. They definitely most of them had never worked on a film set before and they were having a blast, you know, working 16, 17 hours a day and enjoying it. Um, but you know, there was definitely that level of unprofessionalism too and with the whole party element to the movie it was easy to get caught up in that and to not always be in work mode um, and so it definitely added some challenges um, and you know I was dealing with uh, doing the walkie talkies on the movie, and you know we had a giant marine department who also very experienced on water but had never really been on a set before and didn't realize these walkies are you know like eight hundred dollars a piece and so they kept getting kicked into the lake, and you know, I kept having to explain to the production manager why we were losing all these walkies. And we probably recovered about half of them, and that were water damaged. But there's probably still a good ten to fifteen walkies sitting at the bottom of that lake somewhere. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it was definitely a unique experience. And um, you know, as a PA, just being first one in, last one out, I was averaging probably about <laughs> sixteen to seventeen hours a day. We were working six-day weeks, so it was it was a pretty intense shoot. Um, But you know, like I said, I I love movies like this. I was kind of on adrenaline the whole time and um, challenging, but definitely fun.
0: You don't want to talk more about the party scenes Uh, in the beginning. It opens with all these boats and and uh, a lot of activity. But tell me, from an approach to to the planning, Katie, maybe this is is one for you. Did you guys shoot all of the party stuff? and then turn it into a you know a blood-soaked horror fest for when things get going? Or somehow do you schedule around location like we normally do?
1: Uh, we scheduled mostly around location. We did the, the very opening credits where it's a little bit more up in the air. That's actually spring break. Uh, they were in prep, and the first AD and the director, I think they kept uh, – they did a helicopter shoot, and during actual spring break, they went out and – just filmed what actually happens in spring break. So those very first opening one or two minutes is, that's reality. That's what it's really like out there at spring break, which is just insane. I mean, literally thousands of boats that just tie up to each other and create massive barges. I mean, what we created, like, I think Scott is the one who put like the barbecue and the spit roast on one of the boats at one point, because that's what they, they literally hang out there for 12 hours a day in the sun. So they got a ton of beer, a ton of food, and just party all day long. I'd heard that. I'd never seen that. I didn't spring break there. I was like, holy crap, this is insane. Mm -hmm. So when we did it, the first massive huge extras scene we did was, uh, I think the opening of spring break, um, where you come up past the sign and you follow our hero and then go wide and you see all the boats, but it's closer to land. Like Derek, Jerry O'Connell's there on the boat with the megaphone talking to the crowd and really kind of setting it up think, if I remember correctly, then we went out onto the water for a little bit and just did some other stuff, other filming, probably out on the Barracuda. Then we did do one day that was 100% on land of the first part of Spring Break where uh, Stephen, who plays Jake, is on this little (laughs) scooter and we see Elizabeth arresting somebody. And all I remember is thinking, wow, it's hotter on land than it is on the water. It was... It's still 108 degrees, but you don't have the water, you know, uh, refreshing. It's just bouncing off that concrete, and it was like I couldn't wait to get back on the lake after that day. And then the massacre, the true big massacre of the party, that was a solid two weeks of filming, and that was more in July because we, we knew we'd have an easier chance. Uh, It took us two weeks to set that up. It took special effects a couple of weeks to lay the blood into the bottom of the lake uh, for us to book all of uh, the boats and set that up and tie them all up together uh, to set up the sound system on that stage to set up the uh, just book all the extras and know going in how we're going to do it. That was a solid two weeks of filming and it was they were a lot of fun those days but they were rough.
0: Well Okay, so you had a bit of a break while you basically turned over the location to get it set for the ultra violence that's coming when the when the fish have their have their their field day, if you will. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So, how many background artists are we talking about? You said you were hiring folks local. How many folks were on the movie?
1: Uh, Four thousand for the whole movie. It was the massacre. Uh, We started at about five hundred people for a solid. I want to say two, three, four days before it starts really hitting. And then as people are, you know, dying and falling into the water, and we start literally losing people. We started to literally lose people. We went down in numbers. Um, I think we never went below 250 on those days. It was somewhere between 500 and 250 in that range for two weeks. In um, the very opening scene of the movie, when you, when you see Jake come up over, I think, I want to say that was 500. I think that was only one day. That sounds right. I think that was about 500 for that day. But other than that, I mean, once you're out on the boat with, uh, you know, your your heroes, I mean, so it was either 500 or none, it was never really, oh, there's only 20 people here. It's like, no, it was everybody or none. And uh, yeah, we hired a bunch of locals. There were actually people who would drive out from LA, like, especially for the massacre when we had a whole bunch of people that we had some people who drove out from LA got a house together. Uh, they all worked, uh, four or five of them, and they'd each get their own bedroom. They rented a five-bedroom house for 100 bucks a week or whatever it was. And they paid it off, and they all worked long hours, and they made money, and then they drove back to L.A. when it was done. Like, I actually recognized extras that I'd worked with in L.A. out there. like, what are you doing? out here? like, ah, it's going to be fun. And they enjoyed the party aspect of it, too. They had a ball. I'm like, all right. I mean, <laughs> you're getting paid a whole lot less money than you would in L.A., but if you're working every single day and you know it, good on you.
0: Now, Scott, when we've talked about props in the past, you've said about, you know, the big challenge is often just the normal props, but with lots and lots of people. What kind of props are playing an element with these big party scenes for you?
2: That stuff, we were able to shop a lot of that locally, a lot of just what you would think, tons of beach props. We bet, we spent one day, we, we went to Walmart, I spent $10,000 at Walmart buying beach balls, sunglasses, beer can huggies, just absolutely decimated everything Walmart had, uh, disposable cameras. I mean, really, it just got to the point that if it was on the shelf, we just put it into a shopping cart. A lot of inflatables. We, we actually had a deal with one of the, the vendors there that when the movie was over with, they wanted to buy all of our inflatables and they would resell them. So I was able to kind of figure that into my budget a little bit, knowing I would recoup something. But that's what it was—just lots and lots of inflatables. A lot of background came self-prop with their own coolers. We did have to watch with uh, alcohol because there was alcohol is very particular with underage drinking. And even though with background, even if they might technically be over twenty-one, a lot of times they're playing teenagers under. You really and just beer and alcohol did not want to be in that movie. It was not. spring break is never just a good image for alcohol. And that was it. It was really just the quantity, just passing out that amount of props, just because we had a very small department, way understaffed. And that was our biggest challenge, getting everything out and getting everything back at the end of the day. We still have a whole DJ system to this day sitting at the bottom of the lake. (laughs) When, When Katie was talking about the staging that we were setting up, we had a a dj set up there and when the stage started listing and people started falling into the water the uh the whole dj system went in luckily we brought like two or three of them with us (laughs) but there's one that's still under the water right now
0: well let's um let's talk about uh transitioning then you turn over the stage it gets into uh when the piranha are going to attack people start falling in the water there's a lot of special effects makeup there's a lot of just as you said, blood. Are we starting to bring in more stunt folks? Like how many stunt folks are starting to move in around the background or are they all stunt folks? No, no, I
1: mean, well, no, it's 500 people. So yeah, they couldn't all be stunned. I kind of wish they would be, but um, the number of stunt people we had, and then we doubled them up. We put a different pair of trunks on this guy and do, or put a different bathing suit on this woman, and now they're doing something different and put a different uh, special effects makeup on them. And you're not going to be able to tell that it's the same guy doing three different things or it's a wide shot and a guy's falling off that giant top of the stage. It's, it's listing and it's so wide. You can't see that it's the same guy that did a backflip off a cliff, um, you know, an hour earlier at the start of the spring break. So, uh, we, we tripled those guys, everybody up on those. Um, uh, when the guy's driving the boat through and just get out of my way and like People are getting out of the way. I mean, that was pretty much every single stunt person we had, regardless if we'd shot them three other times or not. Yeah, they spent a lot of time in the water. And then we also had the stunt safety guys. There was one guy who was 100% dedicated. He was almost never on camera. I don't think he was ever truly on camera, but his job was 100%. He just watched from his perch, watched the water, and he would just add, because, I mean, the safety meeting I had with the extras at the top uh, on the very first day, like 500 people in a gymnasium, I mean, it was an hour-long safety meeting about, guys, we're, you, we need you to pretend to be drowning. I need to know that you are actually not drowning. I mean, there's going to be points when you're clawing on each other and pushing each other down, and we need to be 100% safe. I do not want anyone actually getting hurt on this movie. So we had a long meeting about, you know, we found buddies, so they knew to everybody always look out for one another. And so if if you come up from the water and you don't see your buddy, the first thing you do is you check in on your buddy. So if you don't see somebody, so cause we can't keep track of five hundred of you. Well, there's one stunt guy whose entire job was to sit at the top of that stage on the top of that thing and just kind of watch. And I do remember at one point he did twenty-foot dive in straight down, just grab somebody who kind of was starting to not feel well or losing energy after take three or whatever. And it was like starting to kind of slip. He just dove in ground. And I'm like, eh, just have a seat on the ground for a while. You'll be OK. And it was fine. It was no big deal. But it was like, holy crap. But his, he had eagle eyes. And that was his stunt safety job was literally just watch everybody and make sure no one's going down. And I'm actually still shocked that no one actually got hurt during the massacre. We kept calling it the massacre. It's the massacre. But no one got hurt during the massacre. Like okay, great.
2: I will say to Katie's credit, it, for for a movie that when I look back on it, I find it very confused, very overambitious. That you know, I have all my criticisms of, of the day, but I will say that with Katie and the the safety, never compromised. And I remember even at the time, going into it, I was concerned about the safety element because so many other things coming from production. I felt were being done, I don't want to say half-assed, because I think every crew member could could have their complaints when things are not going their way, but there were a lot of things I felt that we were doing it on the cheap. And the the movie was a smaller movie. It was not a huge Hollywood feature, but I do remember what Katie was saying with the, with the buddy system. I, I thought that the, the whole safety part from the AD department and from stunts was handled as perfectly as you could possibly imagine it to be. Thank you. Awesome. That, that was
1: my biggest concern about that. I'm like, I'm well, not going to let anything was happen. So much, right it's so easy to have it happen.
2: There was so much confusion when, when we were doing the massacre. If you were watching it from the shore, it looked like it was really happening because there were a <laughs> lot of wide shots. It wasn't always just five people clawing at each other if you watch the movie, you will see these master shots with 500 people with boats going over, people falling off a scaffolding, the stage sliding over, people just bobbing around the water. And it was far more choreographed, at least safety wise, than you would ever have imagined. I think if a lot of film people watch this movie, and they would say, where do you think most of the, the injuries happened, they would have thought that scene. And I don't, ever remember ambulances pulling up. I don't remember people being pulled out of the water because two extras knocked their heads together. I just don't remember any of that. I think maybe sunburn was probably the worst that any of us had to deal with that. And I do remember, I totally remember two things from the heat. One day I was on on the prop trailer and it was 125 in the parking lot on the asphalt. And I saw a, a transpo guy come out of one of the trailers and he's walking across the parking lot and he walked straight into a lamp pole because he was walking with his head down because the, the heat radiating off the, the pavement was so high that he couldn't he couldn't see. And he walked right into the, the lamp pole and knocked himself out. And medic came for him. And then I remember one night a couple of the grips got physically sick because they were hauling so much weight and they probably weren't drinking enough water and they got sick. The heat, I think, was was our biggest nemesis on that job.
1: By far. Yeah, I remember because I ended up taking a week off in the middle of it for my brother's wedding. So I missed all of the Richard Dreyfus piece, which I was so disappointed to hmm. miss. I was like, oh, that would have been amazing to watch. But so in the middle of it, working six on, on a Sunday, I packed up all of my stuff, drove back to L.A., flew to Alaska for the wedding, was up there for a week. And all I remember is in Alaska – In June, it was snowing. It was 38 degrees. Like literally two days ago, it was 108 degrees. And in three more days, I'm going right back there. And for one week, it just, it played with my mind so much because it was such extremes. But I just remember thinking like 108, 108, 108. And that was on the water. And that's, that was not, I mean, the sun's reflecting up off the water. It, yeah, the heat was by far the biggest aspect of what we had to deal with.
2: It's so interesting that you're making that comparison. I grew up upstate New York. And I remember times where it would be 10 or 15 below zero when I was waiting for the school bus when I was in junior high and high school. And I remember thinking the same thing, walking around that parking lot thinking, I've actually been in weather that was 130 degrees colder than it is
0: right now. (laughs) Well, given the heat and the water, like we said, those are pretty big challenges. Tell me what your memories of some of the specific scenes. Katie, you mentioned earlier the boat running through the swimming crowd. Mm-hmm. Lots of all your stunt folks on that. That's a, that's a, that's a pretty intense scene.
1: Well, yeah, that, and that wasn't even a scene. That was just a couple of shots within the massacre of one kid just to show how much of he's an asshole he's in a boat by himself, like, get me out of here. He's trying to get to the shore instead of helping people up out of the water, he's pushing through them. But that was only like three shots. That wasn't even a full-on scene. It got, there was. I mean, the stunt aspect was pretty intense. Uh, there was a lot, of, so many stunts.
0: Was it also a stunt when you have a topless air rider? She gets her legs eaten off? Uh,
1: no, that was one of our either five or six adult film actresses. Uh, she was actually the second choice. The first choice was who we started filming with on day one. I remember this. And then, <laughs> yes, a day one of filming is one of the first things we filmed, might have been the first thing we filmed. And as we're out filming and She's up there and the plan was she, we were going to do the first half and then we we're going to go film something else. And, uh, she was going to come back later in the week. And then we we're going to go back out with the green screen and the legs hanging for so us. We weren't going to do it all in the same day. And then the parachute that is the parasail ripped and it couldn't go up in the air anymore. And it's the only one and it matched. And so we had to send it to Texas to get it fixed. Um, okay, so we can't film that anymore, fine. In the meantime, we sent her back to Los Angeles. And we said, we'll let you know when the parasail is fixed. And we'll bring her back out and we'll complete the rest of the scene. Uh, So it took like six weeks to get it fixed or something. So by the time they get it back out to Arizona, I remember getting a call from one of the producers. I was going out with Gregory, who is Alex's producing partner. And he was kind of directing a second unit. We went out to do some desert establishing shots, like the Gila monster at the top, the two scorpions fighting. We were doing that kind of stuff sh- in, out in the middle of the desert. And when the producers calls me, like, um, okay, so here's the deal. I'm like, what are you talking about? Because tomorrow we were set up to film. We we're gonna bring this a- actress back in. Uh, but we had just gotten word that while she was back in LA for the six weeks, she had still been working for her adult film entertainment company. And that day, she had been arrested along with her entire crew because they were filming an enti- an adult film in a public park. <laughs> so we're like, excuse me, what? And the only part we, I did remember thinking this, uh, remembering this part, um, uh, the only person not arrested was the PA and mostly because that person was a PA, but also because they needed someone to go tell the company so that the company could bail out the entire crew. We're like, okay. So we had a car, waiting at the city jail so that when she got bailed out, we could get her in the car and drive her straight out to Arizona because there was no easy way out to Lake Havasu. It was the only airport's a private airport. So you either drove eight hours from Los Angeles or you flew to Vegas and then drove two to three hours from Vegas. But there's no in or out. It's a day of travel regardless. So we had a car standing by for her. In the meantime, we were looking for a backup who ironically was who Alex the director originally wanted but the studio didn't want so our backup was who Alex really wanted so I think the Thursday morning whatever day it was they show up and the second choice or their backup is there first we're like great get her into hair and makeup this is who we're going to film with and right when we're about to head out in the boat <laughs> the, the first actress arrives and she's there like Which do we want to do? Because if we go with the first one, we only have to do half a scene because we've already shot with her. If we go with the second one, the backup, that's who Alex really wants. We have to shoot the entire thing in a day, which we're prepared to do because that was our backup. What do we do? No, she just say we didn't, she didn't arrive for another five minutes. You were already out of the boat. You had to go because Alex wanted his first choice, which having watched both of the actresses, Alex was right. She did a fantastic job on what she was doing. She loved every second of it. She was hanging out there, just having a ball like, okay, great. And we did that entire sequence in a day with like one camera crew on the boat. And that was it. Just a little mini second unit. We went out. That's what we were out filming while the main unit was filming with Christopher Lloyd in the pet shop. Again, another scene I missed. I'm like, God damn it. I want to see these guys work. Yeah. All right. I still remember just getting a phone call from she was so our actress is in jail. Great, okay, And Fantastic. was the
0: studio just not impressed with the list of credits that you, Alex's <laughs> first choice had? I mean, what, how, did, how does the studio weigh in on something like that? I
1: I, no, I think they actually auditioned. Um, I believe they actually auditioned before they're like, take me, take me up, take me up, I'm getting eaten alive, screaming, horror aspect of it all. I think
2: that was also a, a, a part of the novelty casting of the show. Because there were several actresses. I think, um, who was the the blonde actress who was one of our main actresses? Riley Steele. Riley Steele, Steele, yes. Riley Steele is, is still a working adult actress. And she had one of the main parts in the movie. So I think the movie was using that aspect to get itself on the map. There were definitely a lot of adult actresses peppered throughout. So that was by design. That wasn't just, it just so happened that these actresses were cast in the movie. They were sought out. Um, I also think that Alex probably dropped a dime on with the police to get that other actress (laughs) out of (laughs) the scene.
1: You know, I wouldn't be surprised, except I like to think he was a little bit too busy to keep up with what was happening in L.A. (laughs) Uh, But I will say, I am actually really, really grateful for those adult film actresses because there was so much nudity required on set. But again, because of the water aspect, it became very, very difficult to do, um, you know, what we normally do on set and do a closed set and only a few people can watch. And then as soon as you say cut, somebody steps in with a robe. Well, we didn't have that and you didn't have that time. And I just remember one of the very first things we filmed, uh, Kelly, who played, um, I forget the character's name, but she was the brunette and then Riley was the blonde. Uh, she is not an adult film actress and she knew going in there was a lot of nudity. She was dialed in, but she was still expecting this closed set. And I just remember one of the first things we filmed was the two of them swimming topless. And we would start with putting the robes on and Riley was like, I don't care. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. Don't come over. And the more comfortable and then she would sit next to Kelly and chit chat with her and got her a lot more comfortable with the nudity. And it really helped relaxed Kelly quite a bit. And so we started between takes, like just to not worry about it so much. And because they weren't worried about it so much it, and it just became a de facto part of the set, it just, it made it so much easier because if we had had to constantly do like cover up, cover up, you know, step inside here and hide, you know, which you know, we would have been willing to do, absolutely, but it just, it made it easier to not have to do that. And the more actresses who were much more comfortable just being nude all the time, it absolutely made it a lot easier to do. And they were all super sweetheart and thrilled to get their SAG card. And honestly, they were making more money on this than they'd ever made in their lives on any shoot, And they were thrilled with it.
0: You know, that reminds me of another scene where the two ladies you're talking about, they do like an underwater nude ballet, kind of reminded me of Zumanity, the Cirque du Soleil show in Las Vegas, Mm -hmm. If folks have seen it. Um, Were you guys doing that out on the lake, or you do that on a stage somewhere? It wasn't clear to me on the underwater work. That was on the lake.
1: No, 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 no. That was in our tank. That was in the tank? That was in the tank. There was no way that water was going to be that clear out on the lake.
2: because Okay. Then I'm, I guess I'm thinking of them jumping off of the boat yes. to, to start the scene
0: and then the yes. underwater was in the tank. Okay. And yes. so, so tell me more about the tank that was set up. What kind of scenes did you do there? How'd that work for you guys?
1: The tank was basically this giant hole, giant pit dug into the ground and filled with water that the effects guys built. It was, it was massive. I, I don't even remember how big it was. Um, but there was a, a very large pool side really that's and that's where we did any true underwater filming like the underwater ballet excuse me but then there was also the caverns and that's where we did the scuba divers going deep in and finding the eggs and because there is no cavern in the lake you can't film that um in the lake so that's where we did that and then any other random underwater stuff we had like three days at the end of like pickup shots of just general underwater things. Um, uh, Anything that we didn't get of underwater camera looking up at like what the piranhas see of what they're about to bite looking up the sky. We did that in a tank. Yeah, that tank with the effects guys built, that was incredibly impressive. It was, I don't even know how many hundreds of thousands of gallons. It, It was huge and it was fantastic. It was really, really well done.
2: I remember touring it, going on a tech scout, before it was filled with water.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: you really get a much different perspective of it. And when Katie says it was a giant hole in the ground, she's not kidding. I mean, that thing was, was just absolutely huge. This wasn't like bring a backhoe in one day and, and dig a hole and fill it with water. This thing really was making a man-made pond. And there were, ca- there were caverns inside, it was very complex. And I remember once it was filled with water, it had to sit for a while to let all the sediment sink so the water would be clear. What do you think happened to the tank?
1: Oh, God. I think there was a plan at one point. Somebody wanted to buy... I can't remember, though. I mean, that was 10 years ago, so I don't remember, but... I remember that. I remember... Somebody somebody was excited about it. Somebody liked it. Somebody wanted to buy it or the land, but I I, don't remember what. I
2: think what happened was they couldn't leave it as is because there was too big a liability mm. that if somebody bought it and because it wasn't made to be a long-standing lake. So if someone was in that water and all of a sudden the side, it wasn't a tank. It really was a hole in the ground. There was True. no reinforcement. So if the side started slipping or if it wasn't stable, I think, I believe it was eventually filled in just for liability reasons. But I do remember whoever owned the land wanted to keep it. <laughs> but also- <laughs> I think, you know, we keep calling it Lake Havasu, but it was really part of uh, the Colorado River. So the lake was always being fed by a river. I think with the intense heat, if you had filled that, if we had left that tank filled with water, I think it would be just a moment, a matter of time, until it had all evaporated, because there was no natural source filling it. I think it's pretty hard to keep a man-made lake going in, in that heat.
1: Well, that makes sense. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I do remember finding out, I had no idea Lake Havasu is not a lake. It's just a massive part of the Colorado River. And so the water was always moving. So we were on a very slow moving river.
2: Which I think also helped keep the fish (laughs) (laughs) moving away.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of the fish, and you talked about it earlier, um, Scott, in your encounter with um, a couple of local folks, the piranhas themselves are digital. Is that, uh, they I'm not saying hundred yeah, percent there is a scene. What, what about the scene where I think, uh, Jessica, she plays Kelly. She's batting away piranha with a frying pan. Certainly someone's off camera, throwing fish at her for that sake. Do you guys recall, or is that digital as well? You think?
2: I think it was digital. I mean, it certainly was, it was not props throwing fish at her. And that I, would
0: be your job, right? If someone had no, to throw fish.
2: If yeah, I mean, we would have had the rubber fish, rubber versions of them, which I know for sure. We never had any prop piranha. And I don't remember the effects crew bringing any. The only ones that I remember were there was one that, in the pet store that they bring Christopher Lloyd. It was a rubber, just effects-made version of it. I can't remember whether it was supposed to be alive at the time or if he's looking at a dead one. But I think there was one for holding, but that scene where she's hitting him, best that I can remember, it was all CGI.
1: Yeah, I think maybe we were throwing something at her so that, you know, like whether it was green balls or something so that she knew when to swing the pan. But, and I, I believe we did have one, I think the visual effects guys had something so that like when we put it in the tank in the pet store, they could see how the light reflected off the fins in order to create the CGI piranha. I do remember in the pet store, there was a part of the script originally that was going to be, Oh, Christopher Lloyd's character had an actual piranha in his pet store so that we could literally do like a side-by-side comparison. And uh, we weren't allowed to bring piranha in. That turns out, and who knew this, piranha, actual piranha are not allowed in any part of the state or any part of the country where if you release them into the wild, they would survive at all. So you can't have piranha in Arizona, New Mexico, Southern California, because the water would, they could survive if you release them accidentally on purpose wherever in the water. So I remember there was talk of when they went up to Montreal to do post-production, they can get a piranha up there. And I think they might've gotten one just to do like reference photos of, to create their CGI piranha and then make it bigger, just you know, double check the sizing or the shape of it and the overall. But I do remember thinking, okay, well, we don't have to deal with getting a piranha from some animal wrangler and bringing it from Los Angeles to Arizona because they're not even in Los Angeles. You're not allowed to have them. Like, okay, one less thing I have to worry about. Great, post-production can deal with that.
0: When you're shooting these scenes, so there's no actual fish, uh, any special setup you have to do as far as organizing or executing these scenes?
1: I mean, I think once or twice, uh, visual effects had something just to double-check the reflection of light on the water or something like that, and so it would be a reference pass. For their purposes but not for any actual filming but no i i don't remember anything it was i mean the vast majority of it is when you see schools and schools of them so that's all cgi anyway um when it was only one or two and then sometimes it was just from like their point of view in which case you know that was an after effect they put in as well
0: so the piranha vision you're not using a special camera for that they're doing a digital effect to create that piranha vision (laughs) yes Uh, (laughs) As they're attacking people through and through, yeah. but that's Exactly, sort of a bit of that. exactly.
2: I thought it was kind of cute for the CGI. They tended to give, and if you've just seen the movie recently, a lot of the piranha, they gave them a lot of facial characteristics. Sometimes it looks like they're almost smiling or winking at the camera, but they were not, de- they didn't give them that same kind of dead eye look that Spielberg gave the shark in Jaws. These piranha had an almost Warner Brothers animation feel to them at
3: times.
1: Like, personality.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I remember
1: one part
3: where uh, K&B Effects, the guys that were doing the special effects makeup, actually had these green, kind of flat, like, fish-shaped pads with, like, little blood packs for the scenes where they were firing guns and shooting the piranha underwater. And they actually were wearing, like, green gloves and kind of just smashing these little blood packs to create some of that for, to represent the piranhas getting shot underwater. So I remember that, but yeah, obviously, all of that was done CG afterwards with the actual fish.
0: There was one um, scene that was clearly digital. I think uh, for my enthusiasm for the movie, this might have been even a, l- a little over the edge, even for me. But um, Piranha consume uh, the severed penis. With Jerry O'Connell in the water. Now, did you guys have to film anything? Like, is that a scene you guys had to film? Or we're going to let the folks in Montreal do that from <laughs> beginning to end?
1: I vaguely remember a rubber penis on set. It didn't come from me. <laughs> it, wasn't,
3: it wasn't from France, No, it would have so. been from
1: special effects makeup. But I honestly can't remember if we actually had it or if we constantly joked about needing it and didn't actually need it. I think there was. I think special effects makeup had like some kind of severed penis on set, and I, you know, visual effects would have animated it a little bit more. But <laughs>
2: what we did have, what I did get when um, when Riley Steele gets gets eaten, she had she had fake breasts, mm-hmm. and I had a I had to get the um,
1: oh the silicone pack,
2: the, the silicone packs. Mm-hmm. So that was not easy to get. They're very difficult. <laughs> That's like, what was, there was a show out at the time about um,
0: plastic surgery. It was a TV series.
1: Oh, yeah. That was Ryan Murphy's show. Uh,
0: the Dr. Brothers or whatever that are running the plastic yeah. surgery place, right? Yeah. I didn't see it, but I know what you're talking about.
2: It, it wasn't reality. It was a regular scripted <laughs> show about... Anyway, I, I remember contacting the prop master on that. He had one, and he was able to give me the name of the supplier, And I was able to get two of them. And I actually remember going into the pool with the, uh, one of the effects guys with um, what's his name? Daniels, uh, Alex, Alex Daniels, who was our stunt coordinator. We were filming in the pool, the rate of ascent of the silicone packs. And I remember we actually had to open them up to, to change their, their level of buoyancy because I think in reality they would not float. I think in reality they sank. So we had a, to, to work to work with them, but the silicone packs when you see her fake boobs uh, float to the top those those were props. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of uh, some of the, sp- the actors, let's let's dovetail in on that. How did they take to basically the gratuitousness, the violence, the just the insanity?
1: For the most part, they knew what they were signing up for, so they just kind of dove right in and just like, let's hear for the ridiculousness of it all. I mean, it'll be better if you lean in, it'll be worse if you try and fight it, and it'll look like you're fighting it. So lean in and just, I remember Jerry O'Connell just had a ball. He was just having fun, so much fun, just being so over the top. And his twin baby girls had just been born. So he had two brand new babies at home. And he's like, being this total masochistic asshole and misogynist and he was just like this is not his who he is. So he was just like having so much fun leaning in. Paul was just Paul Scheer was just constantly making us laugh. Yeah, I mean they were just they had a lot of fun and that made it easier for us too because we were having fun with them. They just kinda came in and and did their jobs and then I mean I didn't go out and party every night or every Saturday night like the vast majority of the crew because I was just so exhausted. So I mean we just kind of did our thing. I mean, I just actually, the two kids, uh, Sage and Brooklyn, who played the two youngest kids, they were sweethearts too. They were really cool kids. And they were, I mean, gosh, they're, they're probably in college now.
2: Jesus. Um, <laughs> oh, they're
0: probably older than that. that. You
1: no, know, they were, I mean, they were oh, nine or 10 and that was 10 years ago. So yeah. They were so, yeah. young.
0: Okay. Now, that yeah. reminds me, there's a, there's a scene where they are um, going from the rock to the boat by rope. Is that... Do you have little stunt people?
1: No, they for did For them it. or they're doing we, it themselves? We harnessed them in and we did it because, uh, you know, I, you can't, it's super hard to stunt double little kids like that. And, I mean, if you try and find a little person, the, the proportions are never right. And, I mean, they were in shorts and tank tops. So you're going to find, it's, it's just never going to work. So we, we harnessed them in. If you'll see, you don't see them on the rope nearly as much as you see Elizabeth or Kelly on the rope who had stunt doubles. Um, so a couple of wide shots and a couple of close shots. And then we were very careful with them. Like, tell us when you're uncomfortable, let us know. And I remember they were really enjoying it for a while. And then after a while, I mean, the longer you're in a harness, the more it's just not comfortable anymore. So like, okay, time to get them off. All right, let's move on. Yeah. It was mostly Elizabeth and Kelly and their stunt doubles who were really doing the brunt of that work. And yeah, you don't see them on the, the kids on the rope that much.
0: But Elizabeth Shue in general, she was having as much fun as everybody else, it looks oh, like.
1: Oh, yeah. She, she dove in. She, she did as much as she could until we wouldn't let her do any more. And I said, no, 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 you have to have a stunt double for this. Um, for the massacre, I remember her attempting to doing one shot, like jumping from boat to boat to boat to get to the real boat. She did a couple of those herself. Um, like, okay, wow. And she worked out hard for this movie. She actually really made sure that she was in really great shape for it. Uh, she was on that harness for the vast majority of her work on it, I remember at the end of that day, I think it was a Saturday. We're like, I remember calling a producer, like, you might want to offer to send a masseuse to her tomorrow. And he, and as he was walking up to her or taking a boat up to her, um, literally as she was landing that night or something, he remembers walking up and she said, "Can I get a massage?" He's like, "I was just about to offer that because uh-huh. she was up there working really, really hard in that kind of just." It's not fun being in a harness that long. And she worked her ass off for that. She had a lot of fun too, I think.
0: So we talk about being on location. And Katie, you alluded to folks going out on Saturday and and sort of letting off steam after a hard week. But this sounds like it's a hard show, being out there. Between the heat, the water, six-day weeks, not much break on that. But what what was it like basically on set? And What was crew morale?
1: I I think for the most part, it was okay. I mean – the one plus side of the six day weeks is that shoot, the shoot was not like five months long. It was closer to two and a half, three months, I think. I honestly don't remember. But so because of the six day weeks, it was not as long. And the days were long because it took us so long with a boat to get out to where we needed to film. But again, like half the time when you're filming and then, okay, for lunch break and you just kind of jump in a lake for a moment. Uh, And I do remember like you got... We were there during the summer months when we had very, very long sunlight hours, uh, which for better or for worse, um, but that meant, you know, on Fridays and on Saturdays, you know, we were done by 8.30, 9 o'clock when you had to, uh, you know, because sun went down and you're done shooting daylight, so, you know, you weren't doing, you weren't going until 6 a.m. every single Friday morning, Saturday morning, whatever it was. So, you actually had a day off on Sunday, and you can actually sleep in and still go do something and then still get to bed early enough to start Monday morning stupid early again.
2: I but- do remember it in the, in the scope of my career. I would say it, is, it was the single most difficult job I ever had. Everything, you know, just it's the physical aspect of it, being on location is always difficult because we're always we we always have limited supply when new ideas come up and like Katie said because we were the the position that we were in with LA there was no major airport so even FedEx was always you know somewhat we always had to rely on a FedEx truck coming in there was no airport for the FedEx air uh, plane to land in it was just that the heat the the physical requirements of the job the fact that the job definitely had Bigger expectations than the budget would allow. It was really a very difficult, difficult shoot.
3: Yeah, I agree. It was the hardest movie I've done to this point or show, period. Um, like I said, uh, when you look back and you think about the hours and the heat and just the conditions, it, it was grueling, but like, I don't, it doesn't seem as hard at the time because it was just, you just had to do it and it just became like a routine and you just, kind of got used to it in a way Um, looking back now I'm like I don't know how I was working between 90 and 100 hours a week in that heat and and, you know that amount of sleep and just on Sundays you literally did nothing but laundry and just kind of catching up on life and calling family and friends back home but um, yeah it was it was tough Um, it was really unlike any other show I've ever done I actually have one story I just worked
2: with uh, Alex Daniels who was our stunt coordinator He was in um, New Orleans when I was doing Queen of the South and we hadn't seen each other for several, we've worked together over the years, but he brought up this story and he goes, it always brings a smile to his face. There was one day during the, uh, just during the whole catastrophe scene where we have one of the guys on a, um, what do you call the, uh, the Sea-Dews. There's a scene where one guy is like flying around on that and he has a rifle right Mm. on the handlebar and we had tethered it with a piece of fishing line. And Alex is like, no, we don't need it. My, my guy will hold on to it. And I'm like, Alex, I, I've seen the rehearsals. We really should have this, this thing tied down. And he's like, don't worry about it. I'll take full responsibility. And we, we cut the line, the, the craft goes off. The first tight turn it makes, we see the shotgun go flying in the air and land in the water. And losing, and all of our weapons are always real. So losing a weapon is always a ton of paperwork. I mean, it's everything from federal paperwork, you know, just to the expense of, of the weapon and then having to get a replacement. And Alex promised me that, that he would, him and his guys would find it. And Alex also worked as an underwater treasure hunter. So he goes, this is right up his alley. They actually were looking forward to it. And at night when we would wrap, they would go in the water. There was like two or three, four of them. And they spent about a week scouring the bottom Around where it fell. Finally, he finds it. Comes up, he's so proud. It's one morning on set, they had found it the night before. Comes up holding it, and there was surface rust on it. And I mean, the guy was just beaming with pride that he was able to find it. He comes up to me and, with the gun and he goes, Scott, look what I found. I found your shotgun. And I just look at it, I go, That's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> <And I'm> like, <laughs> Like a little kid who you just took his lollipop away, you just see his face just fall. He's like, What? I'm like, ah, mine. <laughs> uh, we took it to a local we took it to a local gun dealer and they totally cleaned it and took it apart and got it all back up to to, to working condition for us. But he still remembers that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the only other thing I was gonna mention was that the you know, effects guys, at one point we asked how much blood, and I think I can't remember if it was 80 or 90,000 gallons of blood that they went through the amount of times that they rigged things to the bottom of the riverbed, the lake bed, so that blood would boil up and add it with the bubbles and more blood, less bubbles, fewer bubbles, more, bu- you know, they were so good at that, but 80 to 90, I, it was one or the other and I can't remember why. I want to go 90, it could been 80,000 gallons of blood, I'm like That's insane, the amount of fake blood that we put in that lake. But it's all perfectly good.
2: I remember them testing it. Yes. I remember them testing the the way the consistency would look in the water and just watching it come onto shore. I mean, it really, really was a lot. It was
0: a lot. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about tens of thousands of gallons, Katie, okay, I'm not sure there's a big difference between 80 and 90,000. Like in my <laughs> mind, I don't see any difference. Like, All of those numbers look like the well, same amount to me. If I
1: said they used 10,000 gallons of blood, you'd say, wow, that's a lot. Well, between 80 and 90, that's a lot different. Like, right. <laughs> yeah. The effects guys, I, I want to make sure that uh, they get their due because- like the other, the other massive rig that they had was when we did the line between the two boats. Well, we needed to find a way to anchor the boats so that you could do a line across and a line that we were gonna make sure was safe. And they built a giant rig in the lake underneath that attached to both boats so that you could, it was basically a square that we created. And they built it in such a way that the more weight there was on the rope, the stronger it got holding the boats apart from each other. But it also needed to be built in a way so that you could gun the engine of one of the boats or that one of the boats could take off at a moment's notice. That rig, because we spent weeks trying to figure out how to rig it so that you could tie this line together. And Matt Kutcher came up with this underwater rig that was like, that's perfect. That's what we need. And he created it, built it, it, the effects guys did a phenomenal job on this movie.
2: Now, with that rope, the rope needed to stay taut yes. from boat to boat. And I remember on the weekend, I, the rope was a it was braided.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And effects had given me a, a piece of uh, metal cable. And I had to take the metal cable and braid it through, what would you say, Katie, 50 feet between? Oh, at board? least, yeah. So just sitting in my hotel room with this piece of metal oh, no. trying to braid it all the way through the rope. Oh God. And then once it was done, the rope is now rigid. So you can't coil it up. So I don't remember. <laughs> I remember it took two of us to get it out of my room because again, you couldn't just coil it up and carry it. It had a certain amount of, you could coil it a little bit, but you didn't want to make it too tight because then the rope would remain in that position. <laughs> it was just a. It was it was just a. It was just you know yet another thing I had to contend with that was thrown in my lap at the last minute. It's like oh yeah we need the rope taut, so could you run this piece of metal cable through all fifty feet of it?
1: But we also need it to be able to be coiled up right before three, she throws it. So there's another rope standing by so that yeah. she can throw it and then yes. it, just switch it out. And yeah, it was. Yeah. That, I mean, the more I talk about that show, the more I'm like, oh yeah, that wasn't easy. I mean, it's funny, like as it fades, like, oh yeah, you remember the good stuff. Like, oh yeah, that that show was rough. That was tough.
2: I think the word I heard on that movie, the phrase I heard on that movie more than anything else was from the line producer, Lewis Friedman. Who yes. Every time I asked him for something, sorry, don't have the money, not approved, not approved, not approved, <laughs> not approved. <laughs> and it, it got so ridiculous. Like Lewis you have to tell me if I can't, if I don't have the money, then you have to be the bad guy and tell them the reason that I'm not going to have it. Yes. And, and, and that became a bit much.
1: Well, the other thing we had to do was um, in order to get the Arizona incentive, uh, all of my PAs, every single PA, the mandate I was given was everyone has to have an Arizona driver's license. That's how you got the incentive. And that's how I had heard about Richie. So, I put out this massive blast. Everybody I know, like I need people with Arizona licenses, but it turns out If you just show up at the Arizona DMV with an address, you don't even need a bill. He's like, this is my address They'll give you a license so Richie was from Arizona. So he already had a license Somebody else I think already had a license and then two other PAs Literally drove from LA to Arizona. We used the production office address they paid twenty-five dollars to the state of Arizona. Got a license, and boom, they were hired. I remember telling one of them—I can't remember who—if you can do this within the next two days and get an Arizona license, you're hired. Because I couldn't find anybody. And now, what I will say is that I told them, like, look, it's only twenty-five dollars. Now, I don't know what it will cost you in California to go back to getting a California license. I—I I don't know that part. I apologize. That could suck. That might be. But that's after this movie, I'm just warning you now. For this one, it's $25, you pay that, you get the license, you're hired. Mm-hmm.
0: Richie, do you have an interesting group of folks with uh, all this Arizona connection? How many PAs were there?
3: Uh, there was actually only four staff PAs, which is insane looking back. Uh, obviously on the bigger days, we had a lot of additionals. So I think probably had between probably 12 and 15 maybe on, on the big days. Still spread pretty thin because, you know, we were designated to different camera boats and different boats with background. Um, you know, the background wasn't even allowed to really get off the boats at lunch because it would just take too much time. So we were going from boat to boat, handing out boxed lunches, um, just, you know, dipping in the water when we could. But yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. It never seemed like we had enough, uh, but we made it work. And um, yeah, it was definitely insane.
0: Yeah, I don't even like swimming that much. That doesn't sound fun at all. (laughs) Well, it's a lot of work, but again, I think it's all on the screen. I think it's a fun movie to watch. When I had uh, seen that a couple of you had uh, this on your INDB credits, I've been agitating for this podcast for some time. I really uh, was looking forward to to talking to you guys more about it. Thanks so much for joining you guys. It was great having
1: you. Yeah, fun to be here.
0: Listeners, I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode. You can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at line. OneWord.biz That's B-I-Z I also appreciate your feedback Via iTunes Where I review your rating to comments And Facebook Where I post photos And other behind the scenes materials At Podcast Below the Line Please do rate us And tell your friends And help the new listeners Find the show Finally For updates and other info You can follow us On Twitter and Instagram On both platforms Search for Pod Below the Line Thanks to Curtis Five For our music And John Wan For our logo The logo is available On t-shirts, mugs, and stickers At redbubble.com Thanks for listening. We're taking a break next week for the holiday. We'll have a new episode at the start of next month. Join us then.
3: Uh, but we were still spread pretty thin because we were all on separate boats. You know, we are designated to different camera boats and different boats with background. Hey, hang on
0: a second, Richie, because i I've, it's too much. Katie, I can't edit out I'm all sorry. of your breakfast.
2: To I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry I'm sorry.